Finance, a security, is an asset that can be traded, that can be bought and sold. And although the specific definition is somewhat different depending on where you go and what specific component of the finance world we're talking about, it almost always refers to equities, often including equity warrants, and sometimes also encompasses things like state or company issued bonds. In this context, equity is another word for stock which means a share of a corporation. If you buy stock in Apple or Coca-Cola, you're buying shares of those companies, and those shares represent an incredibly small portion of the company in question. An equity warrant is a type of security, which again is a type of buyable and sellable asset that gives you the right to buy a particular stock at a fixed price up until a specific expiration date. This is similar to, but distinct from, an option which gives the holder of the option the right but not the obligation to buy or sell a particular stock or bond or some other financial instrument at a particular price before a specific date. The main difference between the two being how they're issued, with an option coming from exchanges and warrants being issued by the company in question. So Coca-Cola could issue warrants that give investors the right to buy their stock at a particular price but the New York Stock Exchange can issue Coca-Cola stock options. Stocks and other sorts of securities are often bundled together into higher-level tradable securities called derivatives, which take various shapes, but all of which are made up of bundles of stocks or bonds or other such lower-level securities, and then either sold as a new type of security or held internally by a financial institution to hedge against risk or to speculate on price changes within a particular asset type which in practice means that you could buy individual stocks in a company like Facebook, but then you'd be exposed to the risk that something will happen to Facebook in particular, and you wouldn't benefit if Twitter, for instance, flourishes and Facebook collapses, or if some hot new social network comes out of nowhere, knocking both Facebook and Twitter out of the race. If you were to invest in a social media-focused derivative instead, though, you'd be more likely to benefit when the overall social media industry grows, no matter who's doing the growth, and less likely to suffer if just one or a few companies within that space has a bad stumble or fall. One type of derivative that has become immensely popular over the past few decades are exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, which are exactly what they sound like. Funds that are traded on exchanges, or said another way, bundles of assets that are traded as if they themselves were stocks. So you might have an ETF for robotics companies, or biomedical companies, or an ETF that tracks broad movements in Japanese markets or emerging markets. These ETFs are established when the company behind them buys up gobs of stocks in the relevant industries or markets, and then says, okay, if you invest in us, you own a portion of these stocks and other assets that we own. So just as a stock gives you ownership over a portion of a company, like Apple, and all of their assets, an ETF gives you ownership over a portion of a company that owns a bunch of portions of other companies. Their assets are stocks, and you own a small piece of all of those stocks that they own. These days, 
ETFs take all shapes and sizes, and a lot of the most headline-grabbing examples are those that focus on niches that are traditionally a little bit tricky for normal folks to gain exposure to, which means invest in, basically, like foreign markets or markets about which the average investor might know very little, like the cannabis industry or professional video gaming. The early ETFs that were put together beginning in 1989, but which didn't really hit their legal stride until the early 90s, however, were primarily focused on tracking indices, which is the plural for index. The very first ETF that managed to survive under regulatory scrutiny is called Standard & Poor's Depository Receipts, with the stock symbol SPY on the New York Stock Exchange. And its entire purpose is to track the S&P 500 index. The S&P 500 index is essentially a list of 500 large U.S.-based companies that, in aggregate, are meant to represent the overall performance of the United States stock market. So the S&P 500 tracks 500 U.S.-based U.S. stock market-traded companies across varying industries, and over time, this list has done a pretty good job of mimicking the larger ebbs and flows of the nation's publicly traded companies. So it's similar to how political pollsters will interview 1,000 people from demographically representative groups and then scale up their findings to glean information about how a country as a whole will vote in an upcoming election. The S&P 500 is meant to show bigger trends with a supposedly representative collection of large corporations, and it's considered to be one of, if not the best, indices for that purpose. The SPY, exchange-traded fund then, is a fund that holds a bundle of stocks from companies on the S&P 500, which in theory should give owners of SPY ETF shares ownership over a portion of a portfolio of assets that follow quite closely the movements of the S&P 500 and thus, theoretically at least, the U.S. stock market as a whole. There are a lot of assumptions that go into this, of course, and this system is far from perfect, especially when it comes to metrics that are not being tracked by these indices, and when it comes to out-of-context problems, like issues that stem from problems in other spaces, like politics and international relations, rather than strictly the world of business. That said, if you believe the U.S. economy, and therefore presumably the U.S. stock market, will do well in the future, buying shares in an ETF like SPY would allow you to buy tiny pieces of the U.S. economy, and to benefit when the U.S. stock market benefits, while also losing money when it shrinks. ETFs also allow you to do the same for different portions of the global investing landscape, and as a result, to invest more broadly, but also potentially to alleviate some types of risk, because buying clumps of stocks, rather than individual stocks, generally allows for balanced exposure rather than focused exposure, the latter of which can be great if you really know what you're doing and or have insider information of some kind but the former of which has been shown to be better for most people most of the time, because the majority of people who invest in individual stocks lose money. The numbers are actually pretty grim in that regard, and there's research that shows that most of us would be better off choosing which stocks to buy randomly, rather than choosing our own stocks intentionally. What I'd like to talk about today are financial instruments that are considered by many layman investors to be one of the least sexy options available, but which nonetheless have shaped both the financial world and the world in general in very significant ways, and which seem primed to do more of the same in the coming years. Music 
You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. There are two articles I'd like to unspool today, and both come from Reuters. The first is entitled, BlackRock Profit Beats Estimates as Assets Top $7 Trillion. And the second is entitled, BlackRock Vows Tougher Stance on Climate After Activist Heat. My ambition here is that by the end of this episode, you'll understand what BlackRock is, what it means that their assets have topped $7 trillion, and why it's interesting, and scandalous to some, that they are vowing anything at all about climate change. You'll also, hopefully, understand something about how these stories intersect. Let's start, though, with some basics. We talked about ETFs in the intro. Those are the bundles of stocks that usually cover a particular industry or index, and which you can buy shares of, like a stock, though what you're really buying is a portion of the exchange-traded fund company, which itself is just a portfolio containing stocks. A mutual fund is similar to an ETF, in that it is a fund that holds a portfolio of stocks and similar assets, like bonds and sometimes precious metals and other valuable things of that nature. But instead of being tradable on the market, like ETFs, where you can buy and sell shares relatively quickly and casually, like you would stocks. Mutual funds are handled through specialized firms, and the process is a little more convoluted and slow than with an ETF. The reason for this relative clunkiness is that mutual funds are often more hands-on for the folks running them. So rather than automating as much as possible, they rebalance their portfolio more intentionally, and thus they're more expensive to run, which is why they often charge a fee for their services, and often charge a fee if you pull your money out too soon after buying in. Both types of fund grant the benefit of wider exposure, though, and alleviate many of the issues that arise when a person invests in individual stocks, including the aforementioned issues that come from a lack of diversification in one's holdings. The pros and cons vary between these two types of fund depending on which specific type of ETF and mutual fund you opt for. But in general, ETFs are a bit more efficient, while mutual funds are a bit more reliable, in some circumstances at least. But even that is quite the generalization, because there are passively and actively managed versions of both. Another similarity between these two types of funds is that both ETFs and mutual funds can also be index funds. And an index fund is a mutual fund or an ETF that tracks a particular index, like the SPY ETF that I mentioned in the intro, which tracks the S&P 500, that list of 500 large representative U.S. corporations. Other index funds track the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is similar to the S&P 500 in that it attempts to extrapolate from a small group of companies how the larger stock market is doing. But instead of tracking 500 companies, it tracks only 30. This index, also called the Dow, is quite influential, and there's a good chance that if someone on the news says that the market is up today, what they're referring to is the Dow Index. Still other indices build their own lists, like the Vanguard Windsor Fund, or VWNDX, which maintains a portfolio of stocks from companies that are currently out of favor, not doing very well, but which the fund managers believe will eventually become profitable again an approach that opts for higher risk and volatility in an effort to achieve greater than average rewards. Indices are generally created and managed by companies like Dow Jones, which all by itself has over 130,000 different indices, tracking stocks, options, commodities, currencies, bonds, futures, and other such asset classes. 
These indices are meant to be as unbiased as possible, giving just raw numbers so that other companies, like the creators of ETFs and mutual funds, can then base their investment strategies on them. The largest asset managers in the world, and thus the biggest players in the index fund space, are BlackRock Incorporated in first place, Vanguard Group Incorporated in second, and State Street Corporation in third. All three of these companies also run actively managed funds of various kinds, but between them, they manage about 80% of all indexed money. And as a result, they've become known in this space as the big three. BlackRock manages over $7 trillion of investor money. Vanguard manages about $5.6 trillion, and State Street manages a mere $2.9 trillion. The big three collectively own about 18% of Apple, 20% of Citigroup, 18% of Bank of America, 19% of J.P. Morgan Chase, and 19% of Wells Fargo. And these are not isolated, massive investments. Between the three of them, they own an average of 22% of the typical S&P 500 company, which, remember, is 500 of the largest companies on the U.S. stock market in pretty much every industry. That is absolutely staggering. There was a fantastic piece in Bloomberg Business Week recently entitled The Hidden Dangers of the Great Index Fund Takeover, in which the authors laid out why this market dominance and the rapidly increasing dependence on and relevance of index funds across all facets of financial markets is a troublesome issue without a clear solution. Perhaps the most meta-level macro take of this piece is that these financial managers are so dominant, with so many holdings in so many vital places, that anytime they do anything, they create what amounts to their own weather conditions and shift the center of financial gravity, influencing everything from corporate culture to the ebbs and flows of daily stock trading to the prices of products on grocery store shelves. Different groups hold opposing ideas as to what responsibility these companies have for the power that they wield, and what happens as a consequence of all that shifting and manipulating, whether it's intentional or more like the carnage rot when a giant rolls over in his sleep. Some industry analysts, fund managers, and other experts claim that these index fund managers must stay completely unbiased toward anything except investing in indices in proportion to their share of the overall market. That's the whole point of these funds, after all. Hands-off, index-following, unbiased and reliable places to stash money in such a way that it will grow as the market grows or shrink as the market shrinks. Others claim that their immense heft and power means that they should be divesting in things like coal, because if they don't, it's likely that such industries, which are some of the largest contributors to the issues that we're dealing with climate change-wise, will remain unchanged and unnudged toward reinvesting in other sorts of services based on other types of resources and technologies. The logic here is not to divest because coal is increasingly unpopular and harmful, but rather because when resources are hoarded in one place in this way within these investment companies, movements that are occurring already can happen more quickly or far more slowly than they otherwise would, depending on the behaviors of those stockpiles. And in this case, the nature of these index funds and their trading behaviors might be slowing down what would otherwise be happening more rapidly, the diminishment of value and influence of fossil fuel-focused companies. And thus, these index fund managers' role as an unbiased bystander might actually be biasing the market 
keeping these giants from depleting as quickly as the free market might otherwise cause them to deplete. It's also been argued that index funds, while great for investors, those who can afford to invest money in index funds anyway, the total return of the S&P 500 was about 31.5% in 2019, which was absolutely great for anyone with money in an index fund that tracked that particular index. Index funds are great for investors, but are indirectly harming consumers and workers because of the way they distort markets. As reported in that Bloomberg piece, even the late Vanguard founder, Jack Bogle, who ardently advocated for indexing as an optimal investment solution, warned before he died in January of 2019 that things were getting weird because of the success and increasing influence of index funds. He believed they could one day take over the stock market from behind the scenes, and in his words, quote, I do not believe that such concentration would serve the national interest, end quote. It's thought that he held this view because the consequences of such concentration of power and wealth in the financial industry is similar in some ways to the consequences of power and wealth concentrating in the tech industry which in the latter case has famously resulted in the disappearance of small businesses, the emergence of fewer startups, and thus less competition, the lowering of wages for everyone except C-suite managers, the loss of privacy, and increasing abuse of data mining, and the further concentration of resources and power in fewer and fewer hands. And all of this happens, typically, without anyone involved intending to be evil or trying to destroy the economy or even attempting to latently favor the top 0.01% over everyone else. It happens as a natural consequence of very logical, not-evil-seeming, unbiased actions, which then spiral and increase in potency over time. Academics have found that when this happens, this sort of concentration, you tend to see more coordinated behavior, cartel-like behavior, between the fewer, increasingly powerful entities in a given space. And after a while, there are few sufficiently powerful counterforces with the credibility, time, and resources to take on such powerful enemies. That is true of competitors on the market, but also of the government agencies that are tasked with regulating them. Research has also shown that such spirals often lead to higher overall product and service prices, lower levels of investment across the population, so fewer people able to actually benefit from the interest generated by index funds and similar financial instruments and lower levels of both innovation and overall output. Sometimes these effects are very big picture, but sometimes they are quite direct and human scale. A 2014 paper about competition in the United States airline industry, for instance, found that ticket prices were an average of 3 to 7% higher than they would have otherwise been, because big index funds owned stakes in airlines that would typically be competing more ambitiously with each other but which were not because they were bundled into the same index funds. It's a monopoly, in other words, but because of the industry and scale that we're talking about, it's one that touches essentially every aspect of the economy. An economic monopoly as big as a country, in a country that houses the biggest economy on the planet, and which spills over into essentially every other economy around the world as well. All of this, again, not because of maliciousness or conniving, it's because this mostly passive investment strategy, which aims to match a market's performance rather than beating it, has performed immensely well. But that passivity also means that index fund managers have no incentive to nudge the companies in their portfolios toward competing with each other. 
As mentioned in that Bloomberg piece, stock traders who own Coca-Cola will want Coke to make moves to compete more assiduously with Pepsi, including making investments, innovating with new products, and lowering prices. Someone who invests in an index fund that holds both companies, on the other hand, will typically want them to avoid conflict so that neither suffers. The index fund owns a great deal of both companies' stocks, after all, and that desire for less conflict can influence those companies' behaviors, in turn diminishing many of the benefits of capitalism that are generally upheld as being the reasons that we're willing to put up with all of the downsides of capitalism. This dynamic occurs across industries, from soft drink and snack food makers to pharmaceutical companies. In the latter case, research has shown that pharmaceutical companies that are held in the same index fund as generic drug makers, are less likely to face competition in the form of cheaper products from those generics because of the anti-competition incentives that are created and upheld by these funds. Such competition is not in the interest of folks like the managers at BlackRock. And thus, if BlackRock management indicates to the CEO or an industry friend, either formally or while at a cocktail party, that it would not be ideal for them to see a new generic hit the market, that generic is a lot less likely to hit the market. Which is not direct manipulation, typically, but instead a casual sort of influence that sometimes results in similar outcomes as manipulation would. The big three index funds have denied the existence of such dynamics within their industry, while at the same time, keeping a close eye on new research into the possibility that it is actually a thing that is happening. Because if it can be proven, it could result in regulatory action. And regulation is already impacting the success rate of mergers between companies and their portfolios. This is tricky because once regulators only needed to look into direct connections between companies and their owners to identify potential monopoly and cartel-like behavior, which is relatively straightforward, now, though, there are these superstructures above these companies connecting them in myriad, often complex, and even somewhat invisible ways. And that can influence whether two clothing companies or oil companies are considered to be connected and thus warrant further monopolistic scrutiny. Some intended mergers have already been canceled because of this complication, because they were connected via index funds, despite not being monopolistically connected in the usual ways. There's also a conflict brewing within the world of index fund leaders about whether they should continue to take what generally seems like a hands-off approach, even though, first, they do still have influence over things, and the mere existence of that kind of power focus can change things even if they don't wield it directly, and second, their passive approach, based on research that's been done on the matter, seems to favor the decisions of powerful CEOs, leading to all kinds of CEO-favoring activity like higher C-suite pay, big fancy bonus-earning mergers, and swashbuckling upper-level intrigue that benefits those who own the majority of stock in a company at the expense of normal employees and customers and investors. Stock ownership generally allows the holders of stock to have some kind of say in the direction of a company. Index funds do sometimes vote, as their massive stock holdings allow them to do, but not always. Again, hands-off is the name of the game here, at least ostensibly. This means that not only do these funds already have a great deal of power, but they could potentially have a whole lot more, should they choose to leverage it. Many people in positions of power within index funds claim that it is a tricky decision figuring out how to utilize all that power, and that they're often aiming for Goldilocks solutions, 
Not too overbearing, but not complete pushovers either. But research has shown that in cases where they could have brought deciding votes in favor of climate change alleviating action within the companies in which they invest, they often sit out on that vote, allowing more polluting, less planet-friendly decisions to go through, once more arguably putting their thumbs on the scale through their passivity. One such study showed that index funds only supported climate-positive decisions 15% of the time, something that is easy to ignore if you're looking at these decisions through other lenses, like that of straight money-making metrics, but also something that is attracting increased scrutiny from all levels of industry, including everyday consumers and governments worldwide. One last superpower that index funds seem to have manifests within the world of lobbying and political contributions. Just as they have typically failed to rein in spending on CEOs and fancy mergers, they've also failed to rein in overt political influence campaigns by companies in which they invest, which, again, is something that you could argue is not their responsibility. But when you own one-fifth of pretty much all of the biggest companies in the biggest economy in the world, and you see the massive influence trading that's going on within these companies, you have to wonder, how might things be different if they put counter-incentives in place? If these funds had disinterested positions, which defaulted to don't do these democracy-distorting things, rather than the current dynamic of do whatever you like. There are solutions to these issues being floated and debated right now in the early days of 2020. Some potential solutions have mostly been discounted as non-ideal, like barring index funds from owning stock in more than one player in a particular industry. So if you own Coca-Cola, you cannot also own Pepsi. The idea here being to dissuade collaboration and to encourage competition. This is thought to be a viable means of breaking up behind-the-scenes connections, but also a great way to ruin index funds. They work because they capture the general spirit of the stock market, and that, in turn, has allowed more people to earn high interest rates on their saved money than any other monetary tool, and fairly consistently so over the last several decades. Other proposed solutions have attracted more support, though, including the concept of transparency, which would increase the amount of public explanation and documentation provided by index funds, adding disclosures of every single engagement, every conversation or email exchange with corporate managers to the priorities, voting guidelines, and votes cast each period that they already disclose publicly in this way. Another potential solution that's getting attention is to decide that index fund companies must use their leverage to ensure the corporations in which they're invested are working for the true interests of their clients, their investors. In practice, that would mean reducing fraud, deception, reckless practices, and political manipulation, things that are not directly related to the dollars and cents of making money, but which actually kind of are on the meta level and which influence the world in which people live, where they earn and spend that money. It's nice to be wealthier, but how many people would actually be willing to trade societal freedoms for a 30-something percent interest rate on their investments? Because that's kind of what's happening right now, through some lenses, and these proposed changes could help alleviate that. The same is true of climate change-related activities. It's arguably quite vital that the world does not end so that we have things to spend all that money we might earn from index funds on. Thus, it's probably a good idea, according to this argument, to get the human element of climate change under control 
lest we all get a little wealthier right before the world goes completely sideways. That last point brings us back to those original articles from Reuters, which will hopefully make a little bit more sense now. As a reminder, the first headline was BlackRock Profit Beats Estimates as Assets Top $7 Trillion. And the second was BlackRock Vows Tougher Stance on Climate After Activist Heat. So BlackRock, again, is the number one asset manager in the world. And the first article is about that success. They are up to managing about $7.43 trillion, easily beating the runner-up Vanguard. And they've managed to do this in part because of how successful their index funds have proven to be. People have seen the numbers and more people are looking to invest, especially in what seems to be an overall safe and reliable bet, at a moment in time that is fairly unsafe feeling and unpredictable. That second piece looks closer at this success, though, with a report about the pressure the head of BlackRock, Larry Fink, has been feeling of late from people within the company and from interests outside the company, from government regulators to activists who have been protesting his hands-off approach to climate change-related issues anytime he does something in public. Fink publishes a letter to CEOs of the companies that are in his company's portfolio each year, and that letter is published to the BlackRock website as well. This year, the letter included a forecast indicating that there would be a fundamental reshaping of finance in the coming years and that companies must act now or face anger and pushback from investors over their unsustainable business practices. Not just for big-picture planet-saving reasons, but because those practices might curb their future wealth acquisition efforts. So he's basically making the argument that environmentally friendly policies are a good idea because folks will be less willing to invest in them if they're not ahead of the curve, on something that looks to be increasingly important for the earning of money very, very soon. And that's both because those who lack the proper technologies and systems will not be as competitive, and because of possible government intervention, punishing those who fail to evolve into a more sustainable version of themselves. He also indicated that BlackRock would be inclined to utilize their votes more assiduously in the future, leaning towards sustainability rather than sitting such votes out or using other metrics to determine which direction to go. He then said, in a separate letter to clients, to investors, that by mid-2020, BlackRock will sell off its stakes in companies that derive more than 25% of their revenues from thermal coal production from its actively managed portfolios, which isn't everything that activists might have hoped for. It's a very specific, focused sell-off, but it certainly isn't nothing. There are many possible ways to perceive this statement and the potential shift it foretells. You could see it as a canny PR move by a company that's getting bigger and more influential and which wants to forestall any near-future hindrance to that growth and which is resultantly willing to play ball with powerful political interest groups that might otherwise cause trouble for them. This move also gives them a perceived advantage over their rivals which have not yet published a firm policy on environmental issues. You could also see it as a calculated careful step in a positive direction, which will hopefully be followed by more such steps as their initial moves shift the balance in the right direction, paving the way for more of the same. Governments around the world are hesitant to move fast on this, and it makes sense that big companies wouldn't move any faster than that based on the amount of momentum they have behind every single one of their actions. Nonetheless, a little bit of movement from a big focus of power 
can potentially do a whole lot more than all-in actions and gestures from much smaller companies and organizations. And careful steps might be warranted, considering the damage that could be done to markets if they move too quickly, which in turn would then diminish their ability to make further moves, despite how desirable it might initially seem to move as quickly as possible to some. You could also look at what's happening here and see what is supposed to be a completely unbiased, money-focused company, bending to the will of ideologues, which could have short-term negative consequences for folks investing in index funds. Ultimately, it's unlikely that BlackRock's behavior in this regard will substantially move the needle on climate change and other market-stoked issues in the near future. But in the longer term, whatever the motivations behind their shift, that they are taking a semi-firm stand on the matter could impact the internal calculus done by companies hoping to carve out a position on the U.S. market, which in turn could slowly shift biases throughout the market toward more climate-positive action rather than the status quo of very little or none. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Body by Bill Bryson. I've read a couple of other books by Bill Bryson in the past, mostly his travel stuff. And so when I heard about this book, I was initially a little bit skeptical, but then my partner started to read it and she really enjoyed it. So I decided to pick it up and give it a shot. And I'm very glad that I did. This book is essentially a nice overview of every single component of the body. And that includes up-to-date research, as of 2019 at least, as to these different organs and cells and the various systems that they are components of. And it's told in a very accessible, not terribly dense way. It's not worthlessly superficial, but it's also not something that you'll be scratching your head over. All of the pieces make sense together, and he strings explanations of these various components together in a very comprehensible and easy-to-read fashion. So if you're looking to learn a little bit more about your body, about the human body in general, and what pieces make up this body and how they all fit together, and what we know and what we do not know about these various body pieces, consider picking up a copy of The Body by Bill Bryson. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I have published at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find a couple of my other writing projects at brainlenses.com and askcolin.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on pretty much all of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.